0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm very honored to be speaking with Professor Markus Krajowski about a fascinating book he published with Yale University Press in 2018. The book is called The Server, A Media History from the Present to the Baroque. Professor Markus uh, Kurzjewski is a professor of media history at the University of Basel in Switzerland. Uh, Markus, welcome to New Books Network.
1: Mortiza, um, wonderful to talk to you.
0: Thank you. Uh, before we start talking about the book, can you briefly introduce yourself? Tell us about your field of expertise, and more importantly, why you decided to write a book about me, the server? And I. And I must confess before reading the book, I had absolutely no idea that the computer server we talk about is has something to do with the idea of servant. So mm-hmm. it would be great if you could introduce yourself and also tell us why you decided to write this book.
1: Yeah, so my name is Markus Krajewski. Um, I'm teaching media history and media theory at the University of Basel in Switzerland. And um, uh, I was trained as a literary scholar and um, cultural studies um, um, scholar, which is not a media history um, in a narrow sense. But um, yeah. during my academic education, I became something like a media historian, which means I'm not really from the history department. And that um, provides some liberties not to focus on one epoch not to be um, an early modernist, but rather to pick um, different aspects from the whole history, from cuneiform to large language models, um, which seem to be interesting. So that's um, an advantage of being uh, in media studies. And this also implies um, a kind of interdisciplinary approach. So um, literary studies is one thing. History of science is another thing. And cultural techniques is something like the method I'm um, mostly attached to and um, that's I think um, necessary to mention because um, the media studies or German media theory which I belong to in a way um, takes um, the liberty uh, to um, try to develop large trajectories uh, so a narrative which is not limited to say decade or so. And that's already the subtitle of this book. Um, A media history from the present to the Baroque means um, it's not told in a chronological order, but rather starting with the present with an observation and then tracing this observation, which gradually develops into something like a figure of thinking back to one of the origins and this then um, would be in the Baroque. So it's um, in a very short um, summary, it's the the history of the internet server, um, which um, is, um, has one of its sources in the Baroque chamber servant. So it's the story from valet um, or chamber servant or butler Um, a human actor doing services to a non-human actor uh, still doing services but um, how this same function of doing a service um, changed and transformed during 300 years so that's more or less the framework um, which i 15 years ago started to work on and it has three let's say Sparks, which initiated this idea and um, one, um, as I already mentioned, was just the observation that we are surrounded by service. So we deal all the time on a daily basis with an FTP server, maybe not so often, but with a mail server, a web server and so on. And <clears throat> since one of my, my focus is on digital history um, and rather to um, see a little bit behind the curtains, um, open the black box and see what's happening there. I was also interested in the technical um, steps when a mail server, for example, is doing his, her, its work. <laughs> um, I was wondering at a certain point, why is it is this software called server? And then of course it's a small but significant step from server to servant. And if you go back to old dictionaries, uh, to the etymology of servant, then you see that, for example, in the 18th century, or no, even um, longer ago, in it's a Bithynian times, uh, um, there was um, always, uh, there was almost the the same notion described by this so a server um, in the times of Shakespeare um, was a used term for um, something doing a service so that was something which during this um, study um, I was able to to prove and to um, um, find um, but of course it's not only about words um, another inspiration the second spark so to say, was another book. Um, And um, this book was uh, written by Walter Schleif, um, um, an Eastern German um, literary scholar in 1965. And it has its totally self-explanatory title named Goethe's Diener, Um, Goethe's subalterns, or Goethe's servants, so the famous German poet um, and natural scientist Johann Wolfgang von Goethe um, was not working on his own, of course. he had a plethora of helping hands around him. and this colleague um, almost um, 60 years ago, um, wrote or was interested in this kind of family which was gathered um, or which gathered around Goethe. And he d- devoted a whole book on um, those figures, those people who accompanied him f- during the whole life. And he Goethe became 80 years. So it, there were a couple of servants uh, during uh, the six decades of his work. And I was totally flashed by doing something like a collection of small biographies and derived from... Um, quite remote archives um, little remnants which you can which you have to trace uh, find in uh, those unpopular almost forgotten people and I thought well that's that's cool <laughs> that's a kind of micro history that's a, um, um the the opposite of um, writing um, stories about um, um great white men. (laughs) And so um, I was intrigued by that. And uh, that was the second inspiration. And the third spark was then um, just um, a small sentence by one of my um, most cherished colleagues and friends, Bernard Siegert, uh, whom I was working with at that time in in Weimar at the Bauhaus University, actually the town where Goethe spent most of his life. So Goethe was something like the ghost behind (laughs) the whole the whole story. Um, and Bernard uh, told me, I cannot imagine writing a book on servants as an academic qualification. Uh, so it, that was, this project would have been my my um, habilitation. And I thought, well, if you tell me <laughs> things like this, then I'm provoked. Yeah? So I try to prove um, that it's possible to write um, a book on, on those forgotten figures. So the, these are the more or less the three um, 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 driving forces which carried me then um, back to the Baroque.
0: The fascinating history, how it all came about, and as you said, I guess it took a long time to research the book. And the book was originally written in German. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah, this yeah. Is a translated book. Um, in your book, in the first chapter, you talk about the the word "servant." You give us a a kind of a uh, let's say archaeology of the word, maybe if it's the right word. What it mm-hmm meant and how is it different or similar to other words such as slave or assistant can you please discuss that and also when when you said that when you talk about servants in the book it means that it's you're regulated you're subject to some strict service regulation so it would be great if we could talk about the word what it actually means and what it maybe doesn't mean and how is it different from other words such as slaves or assistant
1: yeah well First of all, it's it's not easy to define. Uh, uh, it's uh, even harder to identify um, something like a stable definition which is um, valid for for longer than let's say um, an epoch. Uh, so you the, the notion of the term, of course, develops d- during three hundred years. So um, I decided then um, that it might be easier. Um, by starting off with um, telling what is not a servant. And so, of course, um, the first thing um, is uh, that a slave is different to a servant. Um, A slave has no rights at all. He's totally subjected to a higher power. And um, it is um, not so easy to get out of this situation. The same or the, the opposite then is true um, for servants. Um, they are in a deliberate uh, relationship uh, with their masters uh, and maybe master having a master might be the most plain definition of what a servant is. Uh, so it's just something like a social relation. And this also applies to technical things. Uh, a web server is, also, a social actor in a way, uh, it has um, a certain um, network. Uh, of course, a very in the literal sense, a network of relations to other um, actors, and there's always um, something like an asymmetrical power relation between those two partners. Uh, they are not on the same level, and that really makes the difference. Uh, so um, when two actors meet, uh, it's always a question of um, negotiation, who has more power than the other. Uh, And then um, if the relationship becomes stable, like for example, in a court with a certain rank, then it's obvious who is um, the servant and who's the master. But the thing is that on each level, now, there's always um, this distinction again, usually, um, at least in the classical court situation where you have one Emperor or one um, highest power, everyone else, everyone beneath that is a servant. But it could be a very high ranking servant, a nobleman, a person who in itself um, is a powerful master. Uh, So it's the interesting thing is that you have the distinction um, replicating on all levels which is not possible with a slave for example yeah, slave slavedom is defined as being part of a um, of a, um, of, a, of a layer which is um not so finely um, differentiated uh, as in um, other societies where you have these um, kind of <coughs> um, granulated distinction between master and servant so that's one thing but of course there are more actors like um more actors like slaves so you have um, errand boys you have porters you have bailiffs you have attendants you have um, helpers you have factotum's doorkeepers chaplains squires assistants farmhands uh, um apprentices clerks amonjenses all those very different, um, t- functions, um, um, with, um, certain, um, features and, um, jobs, um, attached to that. Um, and again, servant is something like an umbrella term for all those different functions. But the most important thing is that it is a relationship, a social relationship, which, um, deliberately starts and which has an end, which is defined. Uh, so a treaty which is then resolved at a certain point, um, sometimes on an annual basis, uh, that the treaty is just made for one year and then it is renewed if both parties are um, um, happy with the situation. Uh, so that's something like the um, um, yeah, a working definition of being a servant. <laughs> Um, let's let's talk about uh, markers
0: of distinction in uh, and and the kind of hierarchies that they were organized to. And you have examples of Baroque Baroque palaces and also English uh, manors. Can you talk about this part of the book, please? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So um, once when I um, um, had something like this working definition, um, I tried to. Exemplify this with uh, case studies, you know? concrete situations where you can um, observe um, the typical behavior of um, the actors. Um, um, and since I have already, uh, since I already mentioned the. The court—that's um, uh, maybe the most prominent place where you can um, see so many people um, working for and against each other on the different um, ranks, uh, with with the different ranks on different levels of hierarchy. But um, all of them um, pay their intention have to be, um, um, or all of them have to wait in the. Broadest sense of the word uh, of the word have to um, to wait for the emperor for the highest power, and uh, um, being a European um, influenced by um, the um, European powers which were um, reigning for most of the time, um, you directly focus on um, Habsburg um, on the court of Vienna uh, where the emperor of the Holy Roman. Um, empire of the German nation um, ruled for hundreds of years. Which brings me then, or brought me to Vienna um, and see how those uh, finely um, differentiated hierarchy can be observed. Um, Of course, not by the people because they are not there anymore. Um, Of course, you find traces in the archives, but what is totally evident and obvious is the architecture. And so I was trying to find something like the opposite, not of the um, representative architecture where the emperor is displayed and represented, but rather the opposite, which means um, the service architecture. So I was trying to find typical elements in the differentiation of the rooms where um, the servants were working with. the most prominent thing if you enter or if you try to get to the emperor is um, the the corridor, which leads you to um, the the innest room, where um, he or she uh, um, gives the audiences, um, where um, he or she uh, grants you access to. And this is of course a hierarchy in itself. So in Vienna, this corridor is more than 100 meters long and divided into at least um, seven rooms where you can only access to the seventh room uh, where you find the emperor if you got um, the highest noble rank. Um, And that is of course totally fascinating to to see um, how the regulations, let's say in the 18th century, were set up in order to um, prevent Um, the um, highest power to um, um, something like a deluge of people trying to get access to him. Uh, And once you have a regulation, the regulation, of course, is broken by bribes, uh, by um, people who are better informed because they know, for example, um, a servant who knows the um, division of the rooms and who knows some back doors, who knows some hidden staircases, who knows some jib doors. Yeah? So doors um, which are um, almost not recognizable because they look like walls. Yeah? And all those uh, contrivances uh, that belong to this um, category of service architecture, I was interested in. And um, so I studied the floor plans of the the buildings or the apartments, um, that's the, um, terminus technicus for that where the emperor lived in the end, at the end of the 18th century and um, um, I was able to identify um, some um, peculiarities that for example the ovens were um, heated from behind and so you would find small tunnels and small doors uh, which allowed access to the emperor's apartments. And of course that's Nothing which is officially announced, uh, but it's a local knowledge, which is only kept then by the servants. And the argument then, of course, goes that people who know about those um, floors or divisions of the rooms and so are um, somehow powerful because they could get you to the emperor just in in three minutes uh, and you don't have to wait like all the other noblemen. Uh, three weeks or five weeks, um, attending all day um, or every day again, trying to get access. Yeah? So that was the um, um, something like a great discovery for me to see that it's really built into stone uh, mm. this kind of hidden logic how to get um, to the power. Uh, so the corridors of power become a totally different meaning uh, if you see. Um, that the architecture was um more complex than it mm. first
0: that that was quite interesting that this that the point you made it reminded me when i was a kid so i grew up in iran myself and when i was a mm. kid i remember that in in organized different government organization there was a high level of bureaucracy and there was in most of these organizations there was usually one janitor who or a servant you know there we cleaned the building made tea or coffee for people who work in that organization and if you wanted to see the boss the big boss you had to bribe that servant because he could easily get you to the big boss without going through that hierarchy or waiting you know making an appointment waiting for a month or so so <laughs> the point you mentioned about the servant was kind of familiar to me in a different yeah, the, context
1: it's absolutely the same thing i would say and um that's um i think it, it can be found in almost any kind of um, administration um, and um, a, a structure which deals with power. And mm. it's, so, um, it's so prominent that um, one of the most discussed German jurists of the 20th century, Carl Schmidt, um, wrote a radio essay about that. It's called, um, 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 in German, it's... It, Zugang zur Macht um, und zum Machthaber, so Access to the uh, to the Emperor. And um, in this essay, he develops this notion of the Indirects. So there's no direct access to um, to the power, but um, you have to find it by certain elements, and those elements are called Indirects. And these are the servants, the doorkeepers. And uh, the janitors, um, mm-hmm. even the the lowest of the low, um, um, somebody who is carrying the wood uh, to mm-hmm. the to the orphans, uh, to keep the emperor warm, he has direct access. Mm-hmm. Mm.
0: Uh, one part of the book that I really loved and was quite amazing to me was um, the. The literary character that you talk about, uh, Reginald Jeeves, and in he's the butler in P.G. Woodhouse stories, and I never knew that the website, the search engine, Ask Jeeves, is named after that literary character. Uh, so I guess it's a very solid piece of evidence you have in the book to uh, back up your arguments. So can you talk about the the function of servants as information center, and also mm-hmm. discuss this literary character? uh and, and, and the relation between the character and the search engine which is named after him. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah so that's more or less the same observation I had with the with the FTP server or the web server, but um which brought me a bit further into the into the, the history of servants in the sense that um you can call it Yahoo. Which is also um, a literary citation. Uh, it's taken from from Swift. Uh, um, I think one of the the the, the horses in Gulliver's Travels. Uh, in the called yeah or something else. I don't know. But um, in this case, we find the search engine named after another literary character, Reginald Jeeves, right? from uh, this famous series of British um, novelist uh, P. J. Wodehouse. and. Um, my argument then is, of course, it's no coincidence, right? and of course, it's no, it's not an arbitrary uh, denomination. But choosing something like Jeeves for a platform, um, which years before Google became somehow powerful in itself, um, is a program. Um, so that's something like a um, a mission or almost that you. Assigned to yourself, if you want to serve, of course, information in the sense that um, um, you don't provide anything. Yeah, you provide something in a in a ranked um, order. You weigh the information. You filter them. Um, you um, manipulate them in a in a certain way, and those. Um, functions uh, classically can be found with a messenger. Uh, so it's um, the information center, a platform, a hub, where information um, of all kind can be found, but they are processed. Uh, in the very broad notion of the term, they are processed, which means they are altered. They are manipulated, they are um, um, biased in a way. Um, and that is um, Quite literally describes what a servant, as a messenger, as a go-between, or whatever, um, or whatever the the right term for this would be, um, is doing when he is charged with delivering an information, and being in the center or in a hub where um, incoming and outgoing information are processed, of course, again is something like a powerful position and. Um, Take, for example, um, a large English mansion. Um, You can think of uh, upstairs-downstairs or Downton Abbey. uh, Those um, clearly divided spheres um, where um, the um, subalterns or the underlings, (laughs) that was uh, also something like an umbrella term at court for the um, subordinate people. Those people, um, they obey to a certain paradox, which I call the subalternity paradox, which means they have to be there in order to um, serve um, their masters and mistresses, um, but they have to act like being absent. So they are totally focused on what's going on, but they have to pretend that they notice nothing. And that's something like the core of this uh, paradox, how the servants would behave and act um, um, accordingly Mm -hmm. um, and um, to the the best um, results of the expectation of their masters. And that's of course not easy to solve. But um, that brings this, um, uh, these subalterns in a in a uh, in a position where they could stand at table, wait for um, certain actions to perform. Um, but when nothing happens um, at a dinner table, they can just stand there. They have to stand there and listen. And if um, um, the discussions go on a more private basis, they could gather information which are not meant for their ears. Um, And they could work with it, of course. Um, Again, this um, makes them quite powerful in the sense that they have access to information um, which um, is quite exclusive. Of course, this is well known for long. Uh, This goes back to Michel de Montaigne in the 16th century, um, where this wonderful proverb no man is a hero to his own valet um, was coined. Uh, And I think that really brings it um, um, to a... um, 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 Describes it uh, in the core uh, that the closer you work together, um, the less um, secrecy is given, the less um, uh, information can be hidden. And um, yeah, so that again, um, contributes to um, the um, enriched position um, the servant has concerning information. And, of course, he uh, or she has to deliver information. And, um, again, with this kind of messenger service, um, um, if, like in the classical situation, the information is given just by... Um, words not written but um, uh, spoken. Um, then the message um, is kept in the head and can be processed uh, in all kinds of kinds of um, or in all kinds of way. So uh, yeah, um, that sub um, alternative paradox was um, something which really interested me mm. to carve out a bit. And then um, the story goes of further with um, a focus on the library, for example. So I just cast a little bit the transformation, how information was um, dealt in classical library situation uh, before Mm. the uh, electronic age. Um, Well, it starts, of course, with um, the most fundamental question, how to find something in an overload of information, which Um, usually every smaller even smaller libraries um, have as a problem Mm. and this usually uh, is um, solved with a catalog or before that with um, somebody who knows the collection and this Mm. is um, in the most cases not the emperor of course we have learned emperors who know or who knew uh, their library uh, collections or book collections quite well. But um, in most of the cases, it's delegated uh, yeah. to responsible for the order, for keeping the order of the library, for bringing in new books um, and um, doing the inventories and things like that. Mm. And here again, we have a person <clears throat> who is in charge of um, developing the library and who really incorporates the highest level of information. And this um, um, director of the library um, um, as something like the um, the master of the library um, is again delegated to a whole staff where um, different people are um, Um, maybe better informed about um, certain information than the head of the library. So Mm -hmm. again, like in the court situation, this kind of shifted um, 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 power in a sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then when this is the typical situation um, in the non-electronic era, what happens if... um, Catalogs are electronified, um, um, stored on punch cards, and then built into databases. And finally, in the 1970s, the OPAC, the online public access catalog, uh, comes and um, um, uh, takes the position of the former library um, or librarian uh, in, in the very neutral. Um, description and then my argument goes that um, of course we find uh, the classical uh, library servant in the OPEC again so uh, the OPEC is the equivalent to that um, but here again one um, can ask uh, who is then carrying the books back to the shelves who is digitizing the books and um, of course you find real human figures um, also involved into these processes um, so, For example, the famous, or at least uh, 15 years ago they were famous, meanwhile they don't um, show up anymore, Um, the pink fingers. When um, all those um, 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 mechanical Turks, um, Mm -hmm. how they are called meanwhile, um, were um, supposed to um, browse the books and put them on the scanner and then uh, flip the pages. Sometimes this goes wrong and then you don't have um, a good scan but re- uh, the pink fingers who um, try to or who browse the pages. And that's this, this is something like um, a glitch of course, but uh, this still shows um, that somebody is doing um, uh, the menial work and um, um, is providing the real information in a, in a way. Um, so in, in, as, as a general summary um, my my argument goes that the so-called marginal man position is a powerful one. And uh, you also talk about
0: knowledge production in science labs and the role mm-hmm. that servants play. That's something that is usually ignored when it comes to the production of science because we know it's 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 a, it's sort of a teamwork. It's not a solitary job, a one-man job. And there were lots of uh, people involved in the science lab, which was usually in the domestic sphere, what we call these the a science lab. And women also, of course, played a very significant role there. Uh, I'm I'm keen to know more about that, and also why why you include the history of demons in thought experiment mm-hmm. in this section. And I think I recently came across a book about demons in science, something like this. I haven't read the book, but I saw the title, and I kind of reminded me of the section in your book.
1: Well, it's it's called bedeviled It's by Jimena Canales. Yes,
0: yes, that's the one. You're the right.
1: Close friend of mine, and we. And we we wrote an article together, um wow. because we were both fascinated by the demon.
0: There you go. Um, it's a small
1: word. Right? <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> well, and um, but be before I um, um could talk about the demons, it's uh, more interesting to um well um to uh, see where this um, um description um was um originated or who mm-hmm. really this figure of thinking, and that's um, um, Stephen Shapin, the historian of science, who wrote um, something like A Social History of Truth, and um, a chapter in this book is um, called Invisible Technicians, and um, he's one of the experts of um, the um, um, 17th century um, history of science, um, um, Robert Boyle, and um, uh, Thomas Hobbes and um, Leviathan and the air pump. That's one of um, um, the famous books he wrote. And the invisible technician as described by, by Stephen Shapin, is, um, um, again, this shift of um, observation. Um, Robert Ball as one of the most prominent gentlemen, uh, philosophers, mm. um, natural philosophers or scientists, um, natural scientists, as we would call him today um, at the end of the 17th century, a prominent figure in the Royal Society in London um, who found natural laws on an almost weekly basis. Uh, he was totally productive, but of course not on his own. You know? And um, Steve's um, um, account was to carve out um, the whole um, staff he was um, um, working with. Um, and. Boyle was something like a corporation in the sense that a body has more than one head, <laughs> um, so um, he um, established this kind of um, shift that um, a name, usually, uh, especially in science, stands more uh, or stands for more than just one person, and um, this, of course. Um, inspired me um, for um, adopting this differentiation also to other fields, Uh, for example, to Goethe again, uh, since the German poet also had um, um, a quite large staff, um, writers, copyists, um, um, chamber servants who were trained to adopt his own view um, so he was interested in stones, in collecting stones. He trained his servants uh, when they were um, um, doing a ride uh, with the horses or with a, um, with a carriage um, to observe um, meticulously um, the roads in, in order to find some new stones which were not already in the collection. Huh? So here again, we have, we have a team. We, today we would call it a research group. Um, And, um, yeah, that um, can be found in different um, epochs, of course. Um, Boyd is maybe the most prominent one. You can trace this later on um, also for the the modes of knowledge production in the 18th century, um, in the 19th century as well. And um, then what does a demon... um, um, contributes to this kind of knowledge production in a a similar sense. uh, He's an assistant. He's an assistant of um, getting new insights. With a big difference that it's a fictitious figure. uh, It's um, a a crucial part in a thought experiment. um, But a thought experiment, of course, is necessary in order to um, process a real experiment yeah and i was interested then in this fictitious um, but rather real impact those um invented uh, figures in scientific thought um have as a um yeah as a as a driving force of getting new insights and uh, how were these channels of
0: information um and, and also communication changed in the 19th century you uh with with the more formalization of replacement of sermons with uh, technical media Um
1: mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah um again and this somehow serves as a bridge from um, the emergence of the natural sciences um mm-hmm. in the early 19th century um uh, to the more mundane fields of um private um, um, houses where, um, um, in a similar way, uh, you get rid of the staff. Um, um, So in the 18th century, you had, uh, at least in large bourgeois houses, um, you had almost countless um, people um, working around. And um, um, 150 years later, um, there's no coincidence that um, there's only one Person uh, left, and that's the maiden of all work. Uh, so it's it's condensed. Uh, the whole um, um, hierarchy is condensed then uh, to maybe one one person uh, left who's doing all the all the menial work. That's of course um, something which has reasons which have to be described, um, and um, the the very. Simple answer is, it's all about electricity. Uh, It's all about um, um, uh, household appliances and um, machines um, taking over, um, not the command, (laughs) but in a way, of course, they are really taking over the command because then again, uh, in the interaction with the machines, the old question emerges, who is in charge, the master or the servant, uh? who is doing, Mm-hmm. Or who is in the higher position? If you're um, trying to start a washing machine, are you using it or are you being used by the machine? Yeah. So that's that's something like the, the eternal question in the whole trajectory. But let me um, get back to this, or um, uh, I found um, um, a case study where you can discuss um, this kind of transformation or this jump from... Let's say a classical um, message um, delivery to an electronic one, now and this happens um, in the nineteen um, or in in, in the nineteenth century um, to be precise. Um, at eastern um, in eighteen thirty three in Göttingen, a small town in northern Germany, where the famous uh, phys- uh, physicist Carl um, Friedrich Gauss uh, was. Um, At the university, and he was experimenting, among other things, with um, electric telegraphy. Um, And um, in 1833, it was the first time when um, the whole experimental situation succeeded. So they had a wire starting in the in the middle of the town, um, going back to the observatory, which were. Um, in the gardens before the town, and um, they, um, which was quite an effort to make a wire um, uh, above the roofs of all the houses um, to reach the observatory, um, one um, or almost two kilometers distance. And um, they tried to prove that um, messages can be conveyed by just a wire. And what was the first message? which they tried to send through this um, electric telegraph. Um, the message was that, um, in German, it's called Michelmann kommt. Um, Michelmann is the name of the laboratory servant who is just walking the street uh, from um, the university out to the observatory in order to say that the telegraph seems to be working. Uh, and. Of course, the speed of the electricity is much faster than the servant on his foot. yeah he takes or it took him um, 15 minutes or 20 minutes to to get to the observatory. Um, here we have the competition between um, the new media and the old media. and um, the new media somehow um, um, paves, uh, paves the the new media somehow uh, pays reference to to the old media by citing him in a way, by announcing that he might come. And then he comes, uh, reaches the observatory and says, well, the telegraph seems to be working. That's just the scene, um, which is quite amazing um, that um, you can um, see such a a strict jump from one medium, um, old medium to the new medium. And I tried to um, make an uh, experiment by myself by describing it with three different historiographic methods. Um, So just to to, um, um, convince the reader that a um, perspective from um, um, cultural techniques research is the most convincing, the most rich uh, description you can deliver. Of course, you can just describe the, um, the technical situation, the newly invented um, electric te- um, telegraph. That would be something like the, the technical history of that. Uh, then, of course, you can um, describe it as a social history, uh, which means uh, what happens then to Michelmann, to this poor servant who uh, gets rid of his job uh, because he's substituted by the te- uh, telegraph. But the third um, um, method to describe that would be something like a media-cultural mix or a cultural-technology perspective, which uh, takes both perspective into one and um, enriches. So um, this kind of narrative. That was rather a methodol- methodological um, trick I was trying to uh, to implement in the narrative in order to. Uh, let it sound more academic <laughs> to say, uh, uh, to, to put it like this. But again, <clears throat> this kind of um, substitution between or from former classical configurations of delivering a message or delivering something, and now um, a substitution by technical media can be found in other um, uh, scenarios and other case studies as well. So I focused also a little bit on Thomas Jefferson and um, his uh, large um, um, farm or mansion Mm -hmm. in Monticello. Um, Jefferson wasn't only the third president of the United States, but also an inventor and um, um, an architect, one could say, because um, he um, designed the whole building by himself and um, he was annoyed by um, valets and by butlers and by domestic services around him. So, he tried to get rid of them. Um, And he invented technical media in order to keep them um, off and to um, release them from the um, paradox of the subalterns. That means they were not allowed to get into the room, to stand and wait at the table. Um, Instead, uh, Jefferson um, invented um, something like a a revolving serving door, as he called it, um, a door which uh, was turned around uh, when um, the meals were put from outside um, on a shelf, um, and they could rotate, and then um, the guests had to help themselves at the table. And one could argue that this is one of the maybe two or three prominent scenarios where self service is um, established. Um, it's not invented in the sense, but um, it's the gradual um, establishing of mm. not being served anymore, but uh, to help yourself. Mm. Mm. And one um, element in this. Um, um, organization of um, establishing self-service was also a dump waiter. You know? So he had, he placed yeah. small tables um, behind uh, or next to to every seat at the large table. So people, um, of course, prominent uh, noble people dining with them, mm. uh, they they um, had to help themselves. Mm. Uh, and uh, how did
0: this metaphor of server? become so commonplace you discuss this transition of server to server and you have examples of the field work you've conducted by researchers in uh, 1970s for example at xerox uh, park center can you talk about this uh the trend that this idea of server became uh, Mm -hmm. common
1: yeah well um, i have to admit that this still remains a bit of erratic still so I um, tried to to get it quite clear. Um, I um, reached out to the people, um, most of them are still alive, who worked in the late 60s, early 70s at Xerox Park in Palo Alto. Um, and while well, this kind of laboratory or think tank for um, computer, um, for the next generation of computers is quite famous, um, so the Mac was more or less invented at Xerox Spark. And then Steve Jobs and also Bill Gates um, made their visits there um, and saw uh, fancy things. And uh, they founded then uh, their own businesses on that. But uh, Xerox somehow um, almost similar to the the less well-known servants in history um, were not really forgotten, but um, they were They did not uh, have so much attention in comparison to Apple or Microsoft yet. Um, They are the um, origin of um, graphical user interfaces. Um, They um, invented um, the client-server architecture, uh, which is um, on the software level, the distinction between something, some entity which is providing the information and the other thing and the other Partner who is then processing this information. And once I got uh, in touch with um, Adil Goldberg and Alan Kay, um, um, those uh, people who were in charge of um, um, the um, the Alto. Um, this um, maybe it's really the first personal computer. Um, and I um, was able to to talk or to them or to to have an email conversation um, and ask them why did you uh, use the term server for for those um, elements in the software architecture. Um, why didn't you go with a different term? And of course those terms always, um, if they are not um, acronyms or if they are not um, terms like T22 or something like this, they always have something like a, um, a more um, um, have carry with them more connotations. And they have something like a, uh, like a, a richness of meaning. And if they would use, they were using the the term server for this kind of um, information processing unit, and not master for the client. Then what does it mean? There's again a shift. You have something like a client uh, um, who has to be served uh, by an entity which has no master anymore. Uh, So that's somehow strange, um, uh, at least if you have 300 years of uh, this power relation in the background and try to decipher what's what's going on there. Um, But the somehow um, disappointing answer was, it was just in the air and they were just using it just by, um, they were not thinking about any alternatives. No. um and that was not the answer I wanted to <laughs> to get you know? that was, um, as I said, um, a bit disappointing, but um, it there are reasons why uh, it is so hard to get a good answer for that, you know? at least not by the people involved um, because software um, has no history you know? and the development of software is re- very, very, Um, rarely documented at least not before versioning systems and things like that come into play so um, you can only ask people by um, this kind of did they do this and that and why did they uh, not do uh, that and this which is unsatisfying for a researcher Um, but um, 40 years ago um, there was no no sense of um, history in the sense that they were um, working with material which was uh, which were then um, or which was then kept in the archive. <clears throat> when I was reaching out to to Zerob Spark, I uh, asked them, "Do you have an archive? Can I come and visit?" And they said, "Well, uh, we, we we have this kind of archive, but um, it's restricted. You're not allowed to go in there." Um, the reason is because Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and others came and saw the, so so many things and um, <clears throat> they got um, suspicious about that. And uh, so maybe they they really don't have so many papers. Some of the, the papers for the um, produced by the people who work there are kept in the Silicon Valley Archives at Stanford. Uh, but that again is not um, the stuff of Xerox Park. Um, but only only in parts. So a uh, long story, um, short result, I couldn't find something like a good answer for that. Uh. So the client server architecture was just there and it worked. Uh. Obviously it worked quite well because um, it served its function that um, even an unacquainted user um, has an imagination what's going on.
0: Um, before uh, we come to the end of this uh... Uh, conversation. I was wondering if there is any other project you're currently working on, any other book that uh, we might expect to see sometime soon.
1: Actually, two two um projects are um to different extent um in in the pipeline. Um, one thing I'm working on is a cookbook, which is uh, again dealing with the baroque. We are trying together with um, two friends uh, for. Photographer and a um, Zurich based cook, we um, are trying to reenact a Baroque feast and a special feature on a Baroque table, <clears throat> which is also really um, um, a narrative on um, not only Baroque feasting, but um, it comes with 18 new dishes invented um, by our cook uh, and, and wonderful. Um, Um, images uh, taken by the photographer which might come out um, at least in the German version this fall Um, I'm um, hoping that it can be accomplished during the summer and the other one is um, something like a deep history of artificial intelligence Um, not uh, surprisingly um, again going back uh, to uh, late Baroque to Leibniz and others and it's the story of um, human desk interaction, so it's not um, the interaction between human and computers, but human humans and their um, devices of thinking. Um, I call them intellectual furniture, which are um, something you can see behind me: uh, card indexes, um, special desks with hidden chambers and um, different layers uh, of. Oops, of um, opacity, um, which are um, providing information which are almost forgotten. So that's something like um, a a long history of um, the knowledge production between human and desks. Uh, And it starts with Leibniz and his arc of um, study, which is a famous piece of furniture, which is unfortunately or well, it got lost in the in the 20th century, but um, it ends then the trajectory or the argument with uh, the large language model of today's artificial intelligence. So it's the hidden history of chatbots.
0: Fascinating. Uh, looking forward to uh, reading the book soon, hopefully in English. Uh, Dr. Markus uh, Krajewski, thank you very, very much for your time to talk with us on New Books Network about your wonderful book, The Server, in Media History from the Present to Baroque published by Yale University Press. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Matissa, for the wonderful questions and the conversation.